Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode is the out-of-town stories for Season 3, Part 10. What's going on in Las Vegas? What's going on in South Dakota, outside of Twin Peaks? We get a brief mention of New York, so we'll start with that. To start off with, New York. Finally this week, we do have another New York update, and this will be the last one, and we can retire this section after this week. This is this storyline is concluded when Tammy shows a picture to Gordon and Albert of Mr. C meeting with a bald man, says it was a surveillance photo from the penthouse murders in New York City or from the location where those happened. That's how she describes it. But somehow we're seeing the evil Cooper set up this space. And that just tells us, okay, now, you know, we can put it to rest. We know that uh, the doppelganger was behind Sam and Tracy sitting in that room with the glass box. And uh, whether or not he intended to bring in through that or if he was more after Cooper getting pulled into there or whatever the case may be, he was the one designing that whole thing. That's all we really need to know and get to know about it. With the FBI in South Dakota, we get nothing in Yankton. That's mostly done. The action has moved to Buckhorn, where Albert and Constance are having a dinner date as Tammy and Gordon gleefully watch and kind of rib each other and look at it, and they're just all excited to see Albert out on a date. In his room, Gordon draws a picture of some deer-like creature. He gets a knock on the door, and as he opens it, he has this startling vision of Laura. That dissolves, and he sees Albert, who enters and shares Diane's text message, the one she received from Mr. C, and the fact that, well, they don't know who she received it from. They know it was bounced off a server in Mexico. But they read the message, and then they re- they uh, Albert reads Gordon Diane's response, which is that they have Hastings. And it's like, ooh, okay, so she's definitely feeding information to Mr. C. What's going on here? Does she think it's someone else? Does she, you know, it's so hard to figure out if you, if you don't know the outcome of this, where this is going. Tammy follows up. She knocks on the door, makes Gordon wince because it's so loud. He has his hearing aid turned up to talk to Albert. And she has the update about New York, which we've already mentioned. Uh, one thing that uh, Albert says here is that because the message was dinged off a tower in Philly, he thought maybe it was from one of her boyfriends. And the interesting thing about this is it just proves once and for all that Diane lived in Philly. I wasn't sure about that in earlier episodes, even though it seemed pretty evident, uh, because the scene was shot apparently in New York. I heard a podcast recently where they were talking about the location where it was shot. And, uh, it, you know, so so it was shot in New York for whatever reason they decided to do the Philly scene there. Maybe they just other than those drone shots they didn't have a budget to go to philadelphia or something i don't know anyways diane's a philly resident there we go case case settled solved (laughs) we are now entering the hotel phase of the buckhorn story the scenes are just going to take place with the fbi agent sitting around in a hotel drinking wine you know nice little vacation in south dakota which is kind of funny so that's kind of a fun element it feels like you know because lynch is playing cole it's like the director hanging out with some of his favorite people in a in a luxurious hotel not really doing anything but just finding scenes so that they can hang out there it's just kind of fun i, I kind of like that element of it there's no mr scenes uh, mr c scenes in this episode as i said we do get a bit of his story just in the fact of tammy finding out about these text messages although she doesn't know what they are yet and the fact that he was in new york at that apartment but we don't see the character himself uh, act at all in this episode in las vegas with dougie for the office stuff we hear Duncan, Anthony, and the Mitchums all talk about that $30 million deal, the uh, insurance claim, the one that Dougie marked up the files for. 
uh, where Dougie Cooper marked up the files for Bushnell love. Uh, we don't see Dougie Cooper deal with this at all in this episode, but we see all of the kind of uh, people who were behind the scenes and the machinations for that talking about it. For Dougie's home life, we see a doctor appointment finally that, that Janie has been trying to arrange for a while. As Janie is watching the doctor give Cooper a clean bill of health, we see that she's becoming more and more attracted to him. She's just realizing how fit he is, and at home she's kind of speaking breathily to him and flirting with him, and he's just sitting there eating the cake. He has the funniest reaction to one of her statements, uh, just turns like almost like a fish or something and just starts eating the food again. It's really funny. And then, of course, they have sex and he's flapping his arms up and down and Sonny Jim wakes up very alarmed because he's hearing her screaming. And afterwards, they're cuddling. She says she loves him and they talk about it again the next morning as he's leaving for work. She's just clearly this hasn't happened between them in a long time and certainly not a form of Dougie that, that she was this drawn to. The placement of the doctor scene is interesting. It follows the three violent scenes that open the episode. So it's like, bam, 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 and then we're in a doctor's office getting healed. It's kind of funny that that's how he chose to structure that. There were a lot of questions at this time about the problematic nature of the sex that Dougie and Janie are having. Actually, from different perspectives, some people felt that the problem with it was Janie thought she was sleeping with another man, that it wasn't actually the man she was with. And then the other problems, I would say more more frequent objections, were, well, wait a second, like, how sentient really is, is Dougie? You know, is, is he really all there or whatever? And so is Janie taking advantage of him? And I think for me, it was just the, the situation itself is already so unrealistic that I think it's able to work without applying some of those questions to it because we're dealing with a pretty fantastical situation at the outset. With the assassination plot, the Mitchums discover that Ike was arrested, which they're thrilled about, uh, but, but we see that on the news. Roger tells Duncan that Ike has been arrested, and Duncan tries to set up Anthony as his new assassin by proxy. He's going to go to the Mitchums, tell them that Dougie was the one who screwed up their insurance claim and screwed them out of the $30 million and hope that they'll take out Dougie and meanwhile be out of their hair as suspecting them for screwing him over. So it's sort of this rivalry between these different criminal operations in Las Vegas. Anthony does what Duncan asks. He tells the Mitchums about this, and they don't seem that impressed uh, from his perspective. You know, they're just kind of like, yeah, and so? And he leaves, and he's kind of flustered, like, oh, I guess it didn't work. But the Mitchums are impressed and they're infuriated now this is a very as i've said very mitchum's heavy episode uh, they're in about let's see probably a third if you discount the no star sequence they're in literally a third of the episode it starts off with candy hunting a fly and it lands on rodney mitchum's face and she whacks him with the remote then later that night, they realize that Ike was arrested. They find out Dougie's name watching the news, and Candy asks how they can still love her if she hit Rodney, and they look at her like incredulous. The next day, they send her to bring Anthony in to their, their office at the casino, and she takes forever talking to him. They're watching her on the surveillance tape, wondering what the hell is going on, and she telling him her life story. And when she comes back in, they ask what happened, and she says, she just very calmly says that she was telling him about weather patterns that are coming in. So she's just in a total space case on another planet. Very entertaining to watch. Uh, Anthony tells them that Dougie's the one who stole the $30 million, as I mentioned. They're, they're livid at home. And Bradley Mitchum has the great line, You fuck us once, shame on us. You fuck us twice, shame on you. You're dead. 
the, these figures are still really malevolent, but they have a more droll edge than they did in part five when we last saw them. These are gangsters that are very reminiscent of One Saliva Bubble, which is a comedy film that Lynch and Frost wrote in the mid-80s. It was going to star Martin Short. It was going to be produced by Dino De Laurentiis, and then the money dried up at the last second. They had to cancel it. It's a very goofy screenplay. I'll link it below. And it has these, like, total cartoonish, you know, 19... 30s, 40s, 50s mobster characters, but like to the hilt, like a like a total Looney Tunes version of them. And that's who the Mitchums are here. We're really seeing that. This is the episode where Candy becomes a real star of the show. People were waiting for a while to see when Amy Shields was going to show up. I know I was because she was going to these events with Mark Frost, like book readings and stuff. And when she appeared in part five, she had no line. She was only in one scene. And so nine episodes had gone by and she hadn't spoken. And we were like, that's it? That's who Amy Shields is? And then this what this episode is just a breakout. It's so funny. It's so good. And a lot of this stuff was apparently more or less improvised by Lynch, like made up, you know, the day of shooting or something. The actor who plays Rodney Mitchum got an injury. Light fell on him or something, like some some outrageous injury. And Lynch had to figure out how to cover up for it. So he created this, this scene of Candy swatting a fly, and that's what marks up his face. So that's pretty funny. And I noticed this time watching, I think for the first time, I realized that Sandy and Mandy never speak. The other two of the Sandy, Mandy, Candy uh, trio. They never have a line. One of them shrugs. She tries to comfort Candy, but they just kind of hover in the background. And for some reason, I thought they had a, a line or two here or there. But uh, no, it's it's all Candy who does the speaking for them when, when she you know, decides to speak. There's nothing with the Great Northern Key this episode. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can support this work on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Tomorrow's episode will cover the in-town storylines, at least some of them. We'll cover more the day after that. We don't have much mythology for this episode, so I'm splitting the Twin Peaks scenes up over two episodes to cover those bases. See you then.